This is an ABC podcast. Good morning and welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Ngunnawal country. The business community is warning the Albanese government it's got a fight on its hands over what's being described as far-reaching changes to industrial relations laws. Labor's introducing a bill into federal parliament that will give workers more power to negotiate flexible hours and abolish the construction industry watchdog. But employer groups are fiercely resistant to the most contentious element, industry-wide bargaining, saying it could put jobs at risk. Here's political reporter Jane Norman. Working full-time from home while caring for her toddler took its toll on Amanda Chan during Melbourne's long COVID lockdown. On the brink of burnout, she asked her employer for more flexible hours and was told to take a day of annual leave each week. But my actual workload wasn't decreased to recognise that, so it meant I was trying to squeeze a full week's work into four days. So really the the work-life balance wasn't there, even though there was that kind of lip service to to supporting my work-life balance. Amanda left and now works part-time at a community legal centre, which she says regularly gets calls from women who are in the same position she once was. You know, they're um, struggling with the demands of full-time work and care responsibilities. They've asked workers, their employers for flexible working arrangements and they've been denied and they're kind of at the wit's end. The Albanese government is promising to change that by giving certain workers options if their request for flexible hours is refused. Changes to be introduced into Parliament today would see employers bound by law to reach an agreement with their employee or face the industrial umpire. It's part of a broader suite of changes, including a shake-up of the enterprise bargaining system. Sally McManus is the secretary of the ACTU. It's a really big issue. It was basically designed 30 years ago. We haven't upgraded it. In that time, the percentage of the workforce covered by an EBA has plummeted and wages have flatlined. The government wants to simplify the better-off overall test and introduce multi-employer bargaining. And that set off alarm bells for Andrew McKellar from the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We really could see a seismic shift in the way in which uh, bargaining is structured in Australia. What we don't want to see is an outcome uh, which will take us back towards industry-wide pattern agreements where it's one size fits all. These are the same people who've denied workers' pay rises for 10 years. So if they think there's a law that's going to make it easier for workers to get pay rises, they're of course going to oppose it. While the finer details of the bill are still under wraps, Sally McManus doesn't expect business to back it. You know, it's got the potential to get wages moving. Nothing happens overnight. Like, all this would do is give workers the tools to be able to try and negotiate better deals. Potentially, this bill goes too far. It will get the balance wrong. The results of that inevitably will be a situation where many businesses face the risk that they're going to become highly unionised, that there will be a higher risk of industrial action and ultimately we will, it will cost jobs. Old arguments revived for a fresh industrial fight. Jane Norman. The eight-month-long war in Ukraine looks set to drag on through a long and destructive winter and the West's preparing to double down on its military commitments to get the besieged country through it. Australia's throwing another 30 Bushmaster protected infantry vehicles into the mix and 70 trainers who'll work out of the UK mentoring Ukrainian soldiers. 
Every skill and every donated armament is being gratefully accepted by that country. Our correspondent Greg Jennett's witnessed some of the munitions being put to use on the front line, starting in the trenches near Herzon. When you hear talk of armies being dug in, here's exactly what you're looking at. Trenches just deeper than head height and hardly more than a shoulder's width to the sides. Little has actually changed on the front lines in about a century of warfare now. Still vulnerable to rockets from above. This is still about the best form of protection soldiers can get from above as they try to creep ever forwards. Creeping or crawling along tracks at speed, Ukrainian forces are in a hurry to finish the job. A tank roared past the last guard post before the bridge that leads from Mykolaiv to Kherson. Beyond it lies the quaking Russian front. Kherson's the biggest city the invaders have taken. Their offence was relatively swift and simple. The defence is a test of endurance. Under the radar, Ukrainian helicopter gunships shuttle back and forth, shocking and shaking Russian units only a few kilometres away. They desperately want their city back, whatever shape it's in. To that end, rockets are loaded and fired. We don't know their origins, but they're exactly the sort of armaments Australia's been quietly shipping in, along with what will soon be a total of 90 Bushmaster protected troop mobility trucks. Counted in dollars, all up, a financial contribution of just over $650 million. Mikolaev's governor, Vitaly Kims, told the ABC every little bit helps in a battle he views as a watershed for democracy. Donated equipment, donated money in some cases, how important has that been to sustain the effort? The very important, the biggest, is weapons and ammunition because our people paying by their lives to defend the democracy and to defend, first of all, our freedom. So, yes, it is very useful, it's very important. Uh, but if I can choose, yes, I will choose weapon and ammunition. In the trenches, on the front lines, Ukrainian soldiers tell us they're settling in for the long haul. They could take Kherson within days, but if they don't, the guns will keep blazing, most of them donated. From sources, the soldiers tell us they'll never know, but apparently appreciate all the same. Near the war-torn city of Kherson, this is Greg Jennett reporting for AM. And thanks for your company on AM. We're at 17 past seven. A strong backlash is brewing from farmers and rural communities to the federal government's surprise plan to buy back water from irrigators in the Murray-Darling Basin for the first time in almost a decade. The budget set aside an undisclosed amount of money to help return water to the environment. The ABC's confirmed it could be used to buy water from farmers who live and work in the basin. Here's National Regional Affairs reporter Lucy Barber. 
For many people in the Murray-Darling Basin, the mere mention of water buybacks makes them furious. This is not actually about the farmers, it's about the communities. Shadow Water Minister Perrin Davey lives in the New South Wales town of Daniloquin. She's fiercely opposed to water buybacks, where the Commonwealth uses taxpayer funds to buy water rights from irrigators. When that money isn't spent in the community, maybe that hairdresser goes, that hairdresser moves out of town, she takes her family... Those kids come uh, leave the school. The school population is reduced. They get rid of one of their teachers. We've got another family that leaves town and it just snowballs from there. There hasn't been a water buyback in almost a decade, but the federal government set aside money to pay for them this financial year. It'd be one way of helping to return 450 gigalitres of water, about the same as the Sydney Harbour, to the environment. Paul Sinclair from the Australian Conservation Foundation says that water is crucial to the health of the entire river system. Because it increases the chance that water can return onto the river's floodplain and into internationally significant wetlands. The floodplain and the wetlands are the supermarket of the river system. If you stop the river getting to its supermarket, it dies. The actual amount of money set aside is being kept secret to avoid distorting water prices. But an independent report earlier this year suggested it could cost taxpayers up to $11 billion to meet the 450 gigalitre target. Claire Miller is the Chief Executive of the New South Wales Irrigators Council. She points out that 2,100 gigalitres has already been reallocated from farming to the environment under the Basin Plan. The environment is much, much better off when we have a rerun of the millennium drought, whereas irrigated agriculture is going to be even more precarious than it was then. The potential buyback move by Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek has opened the way for a major battle with the New South Wales and Victorian governments, which have railed against it. But South Australia, which only signed on to the Basin Plan once it was agreed that 450 gigalitres would be returned to the environment, has not. The South Australian Water Minister is Susan Close. What Tanya Plibersek has very clearly said is that every option for delivering the 450 is on the table. Now, that may mean that we would need to alter the plan in order to enable, for example, voluntary buybacks of water if the other states refuse to put projects up to deliver through water efficiency. The stage is set for a showdown when water ministers meet in February. Lucy Barber reporting. More than a week on from destructive floods in the Goulburn Valley in northern Victoria, hundreds of houses remain sodden and people are struggling to find somewhere else to live. Even before the disaster, residents in the flood-devastated town of Marupna, just outside Shepparton, were having trouble finding affordable housing. Gavin Coote reports. The floodwaters receded from Rebecca Zaus's rental home in Marupna more than a week ago, but the carpet remains soaked. When the water was down, you think, OK, you come in, the water will be gone, but the rooms are just full of water still. It's, and then, like, I'm standing around thinking, well, where do you begin? This is not fit for living in. Absolutely not. And I don't even know what it's going to look like when they pull up the carpets and how much, because, like, even the lino's bubbling in the bathroom, the main bathroom, so this house is going to be empty. She and her two children are now searching for somewhere to call home. We actually asked that in my boss for two nights and then we went over to the Tatura Relief Centre, camped there for a night and then went to a friend, the vice principal here at the school, went and stayed at her place for a night and then another friend's place for the night and then my sister's for a night and then to my parents. So we've just been moving from house to house pretty much. 
Finding another rental property in a region already in the grip of a housing shortage is challenging. Because the housing around this district is just devastating already. I've already put applications in, but it's whether, you know, I get approved. So a week after the floods, you're already putting in applications for other rentals? 100%, yeah. I, like, I went online straight away to see what's available. Went above my budget, if it means just getting in, just so the kids have a roof over their head. So it would have been hard enough to be a tenant in the Shepparton area before this flood, I imagine? Yes, 100%. There's just not that much available. And you're competing with hundreds of other people as well. In the greater Shepparton area, hundreds of homes have been severely damaged by the floods. Yorta Yorta man Mick Burke is helping clear out his auntie's house in Marupna. Won't be able to come back in here for six months, if that, if they even let her come back. So you can see the floorboards are starting to create mould. They're still water soaked, full of water. The power hasn't even been checked if it's safe to be in here. And that kitchen floorboard is completely warped. Well, some of them spots you're lucky you don't fall through to the ground. And where is your auntie living in the meantime? She's just living with her sister at the moment, which is overcrowded. A lot of the mob are staying with other family members where you've got 10 to 15 people in the one house. Some of them only three bedroom houses. The Shepherd and Marupna region is a hub for manufacturing and food production, two industries that have been facing dire labour shortages. Rebecca Zalzo, who works at a furniture factory, worries the housing flood squeeze is going to make it worse. Looking through your job advertisements, there's jobs always going here. This is going to encourage people to have to move out of town to find housing, which means they're going to work elsewhere. So he's going to be left here to fill positions, more or less. In the meantime, she's another one of the locals cleaning out a flood-ruined house she can no longer live in. Gavin Coote reporting. It's been almost two years since Queensland's public advocate delivered a scathing report into the government agency which manages the finances of vulnerable people. It found the Office of the Public Trustee was charging some of its clients with intellectual and cognitive disabilities high fees for little or to no service to fund its own operations. Last week, the state government released an independent review, but instead of overhauling fees, it says the agency has to charge more to make it financially viable. Anne Connolly reports. Two years ago, a woman, we'll call Sue, was struggling with a mental health episode and applied to have the public trustee take over her finances. It's a decision she now regrets. We are living in poverty at the hands of the public trustee. Sue, who can't be identified due to Queensland gag laws, says she doesn't know how much she's been charged in fees, but she says she gets less than $200 a week to live on. No, I'm borrowing money. I'm borrowing money. I'm in debt. I'm borrowing money from family and friends to live. Queensland's public trustee controls the finances of more than 10,000 people with conditions like dementia, mental health issues and other disabilities who've been found unable to manage their own affairs. Last year, a damning report by the disability watchdog found that high fees were pushing some below the poverty line. But a review into those findings recommends the public trustee office charge even higher fees for more of its vulnerable clients. Attorney-General Shannon Fentiman says the government won't raise fees for the next 12 months and that it's scrapping two fees, but she won't rule out increasing charges after that. So we don't want to be charging more, particularly for our financial management and administration clients. But we may obviously then think about how we can charge Queenslanders who, you know, want to get a will who can afford to pay. And the Attorney-General maintains that the public trustees' fees are reasonable. 
PwC did an independent review and found that the public trustee generally is charging below cost and its fees are comparable or lower to other states and the private sector, which you would um, uh, accept. But it did make some good recommendations across fees and charges structure. The CEO of Queensland Advocacy for Inclusion, Matilda Alexander, says people who come to her group are struggling to survive. Yeah, so we have had some um, clients we're aware of who have large assets and yet are reduced to living on less than uh, a Centrelink allowance. So as this report says, it's not taking into account um, the needs of vulnerable Queensland. It's, it's taking into account more like financial stability for the public trustee and how to balance their, their current budget. Sue's doctors say she now has the capacity to handle her own money but she remains under the control of the Office of the Public Trustee. They don't have a heart. I don't know how they sleep at night, to be honest with you. They have made my life a living nightmare. Queensland Public Trustee client Sue, ending that report from Anne Connolly. In many parts of the country, it's really hard to find a spot in residential aged care. It's particularly difficult in the Northern Territory where the shortages of beds are so critical and Territory Government is stepping in to help out. Jane Barden reports. At their weekly Darwin Chair Aerobics class, seniors do everything they can to stay limber and out of aged care. But a shortage of NT aged care beds has made many worry how they'll find a place if they need one. Kim Farah is still traumatised after her mother Eileen was stuck in hospital for a year trying to get an aged care place following a stroke. My mum got infection after infection in that hospital. My sister would go and do massage and therapy and physio with her because she wasn't getting that. It was detrimental to her health and also her mental health as well. I mean, we knew when there were places and we'd say, look, we've heard that there's a place coming up. Can she be taken? And we did this to all the facilities. We just couldn't understand why it was taking so long. What kinds of things were the facilities saying to you? We're sorry she's on the list. When a position comes up that's suitable, you'll be the first person to go in. That went on for 12 months. The NT Council on the Ageing Chief Executive Sue Shearer says she's aware of many people needing places stuck in hospital. The 75 people in the Royal Darwin Hospital, it's huge sign of stress and crisis and this has been going on now in the making for nine years. The federal government funds 700 anti-aged care beds and has offered money for more, but no private provider will supply them. So the NT Chief Minister Natasha Files says her government will provide 60 beds. We are now going through a process where we will facilitate those beds coming into the market. And so this may be us supporting it through additional dollars for infrastructure, for example, it might be land. So um, it, it is unique, but we needed to do something. The Aged Providers Association says the sector has difficulty offering beds in remote areas because of significant funding and workforce recruitment challenges. Council on the Aging National CEO Ian Yates says underserviced areas like Darwin need urgent fixes. All of the providers are actually interstate-based and it would be good if they could get an NT-based and controlled provider operating in the NT that was more responsive to their needs. Kim Farah wants action soon. I think whatever the government can do is positive. But look, we're an ageing population. 
this problem's not going to go away and we want to keep our seniors here and if they can't do that, they're going to move away from the Territory. They need to be with their families. Darwin resident Kim Farrah speaking with Jane Barden. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. In Canada, they call it genocide. There, the widespread killings and disappearances of Indigenous women has been blamed on the state itself. But here, we don't even bother to keep the data. Today, Indigenous Affairs Editor Bridget Brennan on her Four Corners investigation into the hundreds of Aboriginal women who've been lost. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.